And thank you all. All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Hebrews 2, we're going to be picking up 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can check it out on your uh, screens, to my, my screens, my right and my left here. And uh, we're moving through a Christmas series. Last week, we looked at uh, the passage with King David and how that book ends so well with the virgin birth there and Christ as David began or ended, so Jesus begins. And today I want to talk to you about something that's critically important, and that is the Word became flesh. Now, uh, i got to say, I think that you always get the better sermon of the two sermons every Sunday, because if I'm going to fumble on the play, I've already done it already. And this morning in the first service, I think Amy was in there, weren't you? I wrote down, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of the, what is it, Amy? Do you remember? All right. I, can't, I wrote down in my notes, incarceration, and it's the doctrine of incarceration. It's incarnation, the doctrine of incarnation. But every time I went to read, every time I went to read the doctrine as it was correctly, in, uh, incarnation, I kept reading incarceration, and I couldn't stop saying it the whole service. It was just, it was a bomb of a sermon. So you, you don't have to worry about that. Hopefully by this one, I've worked all the kinks out, right? So... Uh, so let's, uh, let's turn our attention here to Hebrews. This is probably not a typical passage you may think of for Christmas time, but it fits so well. And I'm going to kind of unpack this for us this morning. <coughs> the Word becoming flesh. It's supposed to be Word in there in my title. The Word becomes flesh and why it matters. Why it matters. All right. So let's, let's look at this passage together. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. May God add blessing to the reading of his holy and errant and infallible word. I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts because... The grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. All right. Have you ever marveled at something? Have you ever been captivated by something absolutely wonderful? Have you ever seen something or thought something that just filled you with a sense of wonder? Are there... Lots of illustrations of this in, in human history, and yes, there are. You know, you go and see the Grand Canyon, and you see this huge ditch. Somebody, after my first sermon, said, it's basically just a big ditch. That's how ditches are made. Water runs off, and the flood ran off, and carved a big ditch. Well, it's a real big ditch, right? And it's out west. Have you ever seen, anybody ever seen the Grand Canyon before? Raise your hand. Okay. When you're standing at the uh, Grand Canyon... Or like me, I like when I've gone out west and seen the, the mountains, the grandeur that is there. It's amazing to me that they keep snow on top of them all year round. Or if I stand beside the ocean, the grandeur of that thing, and I think, man, there are spots of this nobody's ever seen 
in human history. At the bottom of this ocean here, nobody's even, we don't even know what's down there. There could be plesiosauruses or megalodon. We don't know. There's stuff down there, right? It's grand. It's huge. And it's, I'm, I'm, I feel a bit of wonder and awe. And whenever I stand by the Grand Canyon or I stand by these massive mountains or I stand by these massive bodies of water, immediately the first thing we think is, I'm so awesome, aren't I? No, of course not, right? Not unless you're like an egotistical maniac, right? You don't think that when you are inspired by the awe and grandeur of something like the Grand Canyon or the mountains or the ocean or whatever it is. Um, one thing that I can remember, I brought this up in the first service and I'm, I'm going to bring it up now. I remember as a kid, I had two uncles that were in the service and one of them was serving in, a, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And there's a chapel, I think, of Loreta, Lorete. And it's this like special chapel. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's in Albuquerque. What's special and unique about this place is this. There's a set of stairs, spiral stairs. They go up 20 feet. And it's all wood. But there's no middle support for the entirety of the stairs. And there's not one nail or screw in the whole set of steps. And so these were built between 1877 to 1881. And people theorized that they used, I guess, uh, like wood pegs is one theory. Now there are legends like angels themselves came down from heaven and built these stairs in this chapel. You know, I don't know why I think they sound like that in New Mexico, but you know, you get the point. There's legends there. And I don't believe that part. I just think that the Carpenters of that day were more skilled with what they have than what we could take what they had and do now. Okay, is what I think probably happened, but it's, it kind of makes you stand in awe. And what's the point in me kind of doing all of this? Well, the point is simply this. God created humanity. He created you and He created me to be a people who are amazed. We're made and created to stand in awe of who God is. We're a people that, is, that are made to just drop our jaws, cover our mouths, and be mesmerized by something grander, greater, and more amazing still. And uh, Paul captures some of this, right? Some of this amazing thing that it means to be a believer in Christ and to be saved and redeemed when he says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of, godless, of godliness. You know, we just don't understand. How were those steps really built? I don't understand. How was this valley really made? I don't, how did all this water land in one spot? How did these mountains really reach this high? How did it happen? And you just, it's awe-inspiring. It's a bit of a mystery, and it's fascinating, and it's wonderful all at the same time. You know, as a pastor, um, I think it's easier to deal with Halloween than it is Christmas. I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? But here's what's easy about Halloween. Halloween is like 100% pagan. So it's like, it's all pagan. You know, it's, you can reject, redeem, or you can uh, receive like it is. Your choice, I would not, you know, pick receive. I'd probably be in the redeem camp. But you can pick which one you want to do. But Christmas, which is supposed to be primarily a Christian holiday has gotten muddled with a lot of other entanglements, like cultural entanglements, that have made it difficult to see the awe and wonder and mystery that Christmas is really about. Are you with me? So, what do I mean by that? Well, 
The Word becoming flesh, right? The doctrine, not of incarceration, right? The doctrine, uh, now that's all I can think of, is incarceration. (laughs) Incarnation. The doctrine of incarnation is what theologians call it. Hooray! The Net Bible says it this way, that this is the, the great is the revelation of what we believe, says also here, he was flesh. I want you to think about this. This is what Christmas is about. This is what should be awe-inspiring in your minds. The God of the Bible, as he is described, the one who nobody saw in the Old Testament, the person who got closest to seeing God was Moses, and he was forever changed when he saw God. The Bible tells us that God let him see his backside on Mount Sinai, and after that, his face literally glowed and emanated light from it, and it scared the Israelites so bad he had to wear a veil the rest of his life. And that's the only person who came close to seeing the God who creates and sustains and makes, the in the beginning God. The Bible tells us nobody's ever seen him before, that he is uh, full of glory, and that this God, think about it, this God manifests himself into flesh, as the King James says. The doctrine of the incarnation here. We beheld His glories, the only begotten, full of grace, the Bible tells us. No one had ever seen God until He was revealed here in Bethlehem, face to face. Uh, He existed, the Bible tells us He existed in form with God, though not to be equated with something with it. Yet He plunged Himself of it in humility. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a bondservant. That is an amazing, wonderful awe-inspiring mystery. I wish I could put it on a board here. Actually, I don't. Right? Some people want everything sort of broken down mathematically with equations and different things like that. It does not need to be that way. If you could do that, in some ways, it takes away from who God is. That mystery and that part of it takes away some of the awe and inspiration of it. And furthermore, God has chosen not to reveal all those details that are there. But He has made it clear. And The church has done a really good job in the last 2,000 years of composing some wonderful Christmas hymns. Now, let me tell you what makes a good Christmas song, okay? Let me tell you. Here's what makes a good Christmas song, okay? Good Christmas songs, the authors are first of all theologians that study the Bible and understand theology, and then their songwriters second, right? Bad Christmas songs are usually songwriters first in theology if we get around to it, right? So, let me give you some examples of some good, solid Christmas hymns from church past, okay? As the light of lights, the realms of endless day, the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. God of God, light of low, he adores not the virgin's womb. Very God begotten, not created. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Late in time, behold, he come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. He who built the starry skies, he who throned in heights sublime, sits amid the cherubim. Those type songs, when you sing that kind of truth and you believe that kind of truth, that's the kind of truth at Christmas time or any time of the year that makes devils flee. Okay? Now let me contrast it with some ridiculous Christmas songs. All right? 
Songs that, and this, I know what some of you are going to think here today, and you're probably going to leave here thinking this, that Pastor T's ruined Christmas for me, and maybe I will. But if you'll stay with me to the end, I'm just trying to help you celebrate it better, right? There we go. That even sounds worse, doesn't it? But anyhow. So let me just give you a few things here, okay? First of all, I don't understand why there are songs about angel songs. I don't get that. Furthermore, I'm not sure that that kind of happened the way the song said it happened in the Bible. Uh, I don't understand why there are songs about a baby not crying. Does it make sense to me? It sort of veils the truth of the incarnate Godhead in flesh there. Uh, I, I don't understand why we're focused on Mary. And by the way, yes, Mary did know because the angel told her so. Okay? So I'm just going to put that one to bed, right? Somebody asked me in Sunday school, you really don't like that song? I said, no, I really don't like that song. Because the angel told her what was coming. She had to know something was up when she had not been with her husband yet and she was pregnant. You don't think she got the fact that this was a little bit out of the ordinary and this is a little bit different situation? And especially when the angel made it further clear. So yes, she knew. Right? Despite what Mark Lowry might tell you. Or worst, angels bending near earth to point their golden harps. Ugh, to grab their golden harps. Like, every time I see that line, I cringe a little bit. Here's the, here's the, let me make it the college football equivalency of it for just a minute, for you, those of you that are college football fans. To focus on angels, which in the passage we just read says, get no redemption at all, and they're just servants that God made. They're not made in the image of God. Like, to be fixated on angels in the Christmas narrative, in any kind of song, or to somehow give them glory about them stringing golden harps, it's like the last three seconds of the Tennessee-Alabama game this season where the field goal is about to be kicked and you're in there in this moment of glory where 15 years of losing is about to be overturned and you go, you know what would be really neat right now, right before the snap? Let's go check out and see how they've stacked the cups in concession and watch that for the next five minutes. No, you want to see the kick. Is it through the uprights? Is it not through the uprights? You want the moment of glory and you want to participate in that. Don't get sidetracked with a minor detail that matters nothing in redemptive history, right? No, I don't want to sing about Mary. I don't want to sing about gold harps. I want to sing about God who became a man, lived a perfect life and died for my sins. That's who I want to sing about at Christmas. Does that make sense? Pastor T ruins Christmas. Tune in this week. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna make somebody cry before this is over. Just gonna be like a college professor in, in ETSU. People used to cry every week after he would get done lecturing. He was a terrible. Anyway, all right. So the focus is God became a man, right? I love what uh, Gavin Ortland said. He said this, thinking about Jesus in the manger here. He said, The one in the manger is both. Swaddled tightly, yet filling the heavens, clinging to his mother, yet holding every atom in place, crying for comfort and sustaining the stars, sleeping among the donkeys and adored by angels. All at the same time. All at the same time. It's amazing, isn't it? So let's look at the text here. Since I, that's, That was a long introduction. Let's look at the text here. 
First of all here, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Who are the children here? That's you and that's I. It's all of us here. All that have been born descendants of Adam and Eve, that's us. Says he himself likewise partook of the same. One question that you may have this morning is why did Jesus have to become flesh anyway? Like couldn't the Lord have just like sacrificed a thousand donkeys or a thousand sheep and kind of made a way for redemption that way to redeem mankind? Couldn't that have worked? And the early church fathers, I love what they would say to that. They would say this, he cannot redeem what he does not fully assume. Isn't that interesting? He cannot redeem what he does not fully assume here. And this passage makes that very clear, right? Why did he have to assume the flesh? Well, if he is God of very God, he's the creator and he's sustainer, he's eternal, how easy is it to kill God? God doesn't die, does he? The only way he can die is to do what? Take this stuff on, flesh and blood, like we have. He can't be a substitute without that, right? Um, Aslan, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, asked this same question. Why why does God have to become a man? And I think verse 14 answers it. If you're a highlighter or an underliner, look there at the comma and the that. There's your answer following it. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. Utterly obliterate, right? To destroy and to decimate, right? Speaking, speaking of ruining Christmas some more, I've never liked the Hallmark Christmas movies, like, ever. Like, they are all the same film, just in different towns with different people. I have some notes if Hallmark is watching online, which I doubt they are. But if you are, Hallmark, here's the notes. Throw in an explosion and an utter decimation of some kind for the male viewers that are forced to watch these movies. Please, right? <laughs> just give, give a car explosion or a building explosion. Just something. You know what I mean? Just give, throw us, look at all the men in here like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I love a good explosion, right? Look what this text says here. What, what, is, what is happening? What's one reason that Jesus has to take on the flesh and become flesh? It's to turn Satan's own weapons against him and to blow Satan to absolute smithereens, Right? To blow him to absolute smithereens. That's what's happening in this verse. So that he, through death, might destroy the one who has the power of death. And then it makes it very clear who that person is. That's Satan. That's the devil. That's the enemy of old. That's the serpent in the wilderness that tempted Eve. That's the one who wants to see your life in utter ruins and shambles. And Christ came and took on flesh to utterly dismantle anything that he has. He absolutely obliterates The one who has the power of death and the power of death itself. When it comes right down to it, people are afraid to die. You know that? Uh, Do you know why people are afraid to die? I've talked about this before and some of you remember this. I remember a conversation between Stan Lee and uh, Larry King. I've referenced this several times. They're both deceased now. They were talking about how there's just, you know, non-existence. They just thought they were going to die and there'll be non-existence. But... I guarantee you, on lonely Tuesday nights, when nobody was around Stan Lee and nobody was around uh, Larry King, they knew within the deep recesses of their heart there was a God and there was accountability coming. That's the scary thing about death without Christ. You know you're going to die and you know there'll be an account. Non-existence is not anything to fear. I mean, it would stink, but it... Worse still, to be accountable to a God that you have pressed the truth down on righteousness, like Romans 1 says. 
You know, one of the most famous atheists of the French Revolution, Voltaire, Voltaire, excuse me, that's the East Tennessee pronunciation, Voltaire, <laughs> Voltaire, one of the most wicked atheists of his day was dying, and he was angry as he was dying, and here's what he said, Nazarene, oh Nazarene, you have conquered, oh Nazarene, and then he died, that was his last words, like, I just can't, you know, obviously he knew accountability was coming to Christ. You know, I don't see any Christian laying in bed and saying, Easter Bunny, Easter Bunny, oh Easter Bunny, you have conquered, right? You don't do that for imaginary people, but you do for those you know you're going to face like that. Jesus Christ became human so he could die turning those weapons that we fear against the enemy and absolutely obliterating him like a much-needed obliteration of a car in a Hallmark movie, right? Just absolutely into nothing, okay? And here, how do I know these things? Well, one, I can read plainly what the author of the text says. And two, can I tell you something? I have, um, I have a clergy record in my office. I've been in ministry now for about 20 years. And I've sat by a lot of bedsides and I've held people's hands either as they were dying or in moments where they thought they were going to die. And for every Christian believer, every Christian believer that I've held their hands all the way to the end, one theme, now they didn't all say it this way, but the overarching theme I hear from all of them who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ, they all say basically the same thing and that is this, God my life is in your hands Praise, praise you, I have peace. Not true for unbelievers when they get there, but true for believers because they know the truth of verse 14, that the tools of death and our enemy have been turned against him. Verse 15, and delivered all of those who fear death were subject to lifelong slavery. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that we were all slaves to the flesh We only did what our flesh wanted us to do before Christ liberated us, right? Praise God for that. For surely it is not angels that He helps, right? Here's one of the crazy things about Scripture. I don't know if you ever thought about this, and this is another reason I think any songs focusing on angels is silly, right? But God does not, angels don't get a second chance, right? Angels saw God in His glory and they walked away from it, those who fell. Not all of them fell, but the third that fell was Satan. They walked away from the glory of God. There's no redemption for them. They're they're doomed to an eternity of punishment without Christ, right? Uh, There's no help for them coming. Their redemption is nigh, right? It's not going to happen. But it says here, we have that though. Because look what he says, he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's just a big blanket to mean those that are grafted in uh, through trusting Christ. All right, verse 17. This is always important here, right? So to make this further explanation known. Therefore, he had, been, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. I don't know if you think about this or not, but Christ becoming a human being. What does that mean? He became human in every term that you can become human in, right? He has fingernails. He has a blood type. He has eye color. He has hair follicles. Every single way he could be human, he is human. He is 100% human. There is no aspect of him that is different except he lived a perfect life and poured himself into that. He, he, He lived without sin is the main difference between you and I, right? Uh, That and he's part of the Trinity. He's 100% God as well. So he had to take this on. He had to be like us in every type and every respect, okay? 
And, and for what point? Verse 17 makes it clear for what point. So that, so if you're an underliner or a circler, I want you to circle that. Here's, here he's making, the author's making his main point. So that what? What does it say, church? Read verse 17 there. So that he might become what? A merciful and faithful what? High priest. I've told you this before, but I'll say it again. The priest's job in the Old Testament is to take the concerns and cares of the people to God and have them taken care of. They brought the, the offerings. They brought the sacrifices. They sprinkled the blood on the seat of mercy. They're, they're always bringing the sacrifice and bringing the needs of the people before God. Some of you here today probably, probably view God as sort of an angry dad who's ready to just slap you on the back of the head if you mess up kind of a situation. But this verse sort of speaks otherwise. This verse here points out the fact that we have a merciful and a faithful God. Some of you might be tempted to think of God like you did your own father. Some of your fathers perhaps were not as faithful as the father that we have described here in this text. But you, you have a faithful father here in this text. And furthermore, what's amazing to me about this is what has happened. The offerer of sins, the one who went to the altar and offered on behalf, in this passage has become the offering. And this is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That God sacrificed himself for you and for I by taking on the flesh. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The priest who speaks on behalf of the people, who brings the sacrifice, doesn't just bring the sacrifice, but now the priest is the sacrifice. And because of this faithful high priest that we have, I want you to think about this. He's not giving up on us, right? That's what faithfulness here means. He, he is going to bring us safely home to heaven every step of the way. He is going to be there when we do well for the Lord. And He is going to be there when we rebel against Him. He is going to be there when we're walking up the right path. And He will be there when we stumble and stray and fall. And to help bring us back. You know, I love what a Puritan of old said. He said, Even our foolishness and sinful choices awaken Christ's compassions. Christ responds to our sins with compassion despite his adhorrence of them. And that was Thomas Goodwin. Isn't that a beautiful quote? So true. All right. Next section here. To make, that's a big word, isn't it? To make propitiation. I know all of you this week are going to be having conversations about propitiation. Heck, you probably had them this week. You probably went to see your barber, sat down in the chair for your weekly haircut and said, you know, I would like to have a conversation today with you about the finer points of propitiation. What are your thoughts, right? Not a word we commonly use, but what does it mean? Well, the Old Testament would oftentimes describe the wrath of God uh, in Psalms and various places in terms of a, of a beverage or a drink. Uh, particularly wine, because that was a popular drink of the day and still is a popular drink of the day, right? If we had to be honest in our culture. And it would talk about God's wrath being drunk by the unrighteous down to the dregs. You know what dregs are? Has anybody ever heard that word before? You know, how many of you are coffee drinkers in here? Is everybody coffee drinkers? I don't drink coffee, but 
there's that nasty little like grainy parts of ground up coffee that sometimes get through the filter. And uh, it's like the last sip of coffee. You know what I'm talking about? Those little particles. Those are the dregs of your cup of coffee, right? Well, when you would have wine, you'd have little dregs down in there in the Old Testament. And I think even now, if it's good wine, from what I understand, I don't drink it. But from what people tell me, that it's down in the bottom there. And you would drink it all the way, and the dregs would be kind of bitter and sort of nasty. You know, people most of the time just kind of pitch the dreg part out, didn't drink that. And the picture in the Old Testament is that you would, the unrighteous would drink this bitter cup of God's wrath all the way down to the dregs. Okay? And they would do that for eternity. It's really the picture here. What is propitiation? Propitiation means the satisfaction of a deity's wrath. To use the same picture and analogy that I'm drawing for you right now from the Old Testament, it means this. For all of those who have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it means that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine, He took your cup of wrath due to you from a righteous God all the way down to the bitter dregs, the worst of the worst that you did. And Jesus drank and had all of that wrath poured on Him, even down to the dregs. That means every drop and ounce of God's wrath that was meant to be poured on you in your day of judgment has been poured on Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing to think about? It's hard sometimes to think about, but that's what the concept of propitiation is. Every ounce of wrath has been poured on Him. For because He suited, he, because He Himself has suffered when tempted, right? He He's like a new Adam. When Adam was tempted, he failed. Jesus does not fail the temptation when it comes. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So now he has drank the wrath. He stands as a victor over the grave. He stands at the right hand of the Father, continue to make intercession for us as our, as our good, faithful high priest. And he helps us with our temptation. Well, that's wonderful, Travis, but what are we supposed to do? Well, here's what you're supposed to do with this. First of all, I think you should ask God to give you sight so that you can see the surpassing beauty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and see the wonder and the mystery and the joy of the uh, incarnate, incarnation. Right? Yeah, thank you. I had to think about it like five times before I said it. <laughs> Ask God to open your eyes, open your heart so you can see with the eyes of faith the one swaddled in clothes is the one who made the heavens. Ask God for grace to behold the mystery of the incarnation. Believe in the one who submits to the Father for rebels like you and like me. And trust Him. Taste and see the excellencies of who Christ is. Cling to the one who brought life and who brought immortal life. Hope in the one, the, the only one who is the God-man. Follow the one who has trampled the powers of death and hell, and they have vanished away. Trust the one who got, trust the one who is God and who sinners can run to, and adore the one whom angels bow in adoration to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words today. Thank you for the truth that is here. We thank you that we can believe in the one who is Lord of creation, who is lying in the manger. We can believe, we can trust, we can hope in Him. Because we know, just as we saw last week, this is a King 
who never disappoints. Lord, you have become like us, made of the same things we are made of, and you have defeated sin once for all. The ultimate sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Move our hearts by this great mystery and joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.